when, I, when Melissa and I were doing uh, college ministry back at the University of Georgia years ago, there was this phenomenon uh, called the mama train. And uh, the way the mama train worked was that almost every Wednesday night when we would gather, somebody's parents would show up. And uh, we always let the uh, students stand up and introduce their parents. And uh, so MJ's mom and dad are here. So MJ, introduce your parents. <laughs> All right. So we just we may, maybe we'll just start a, a brand new mama train. And uh, the good thing about the mama train is dads can come too. And so we're we're thrilled to have you guys, and uh, glad that you're here. And uh, awesome. All right. We've been going through a series uh, on the the stones, the river stones. Uh, that God gave us when we first started uh, years ago. And uh, we're going to, this is week three, we're going to kind of finish up the, the original 12 stones uh, today. And uh, we're going to read again from Joshua chapter four, just to remind you of the story. So uh, Joshua has led the people. He's leading them into the promised land, uh, leads them through. Uh, God separates the, the Jordan, they cross over into the promised land, and then God tells them, go back in to the riverbank, send 12 guys in there to, to get some stones. And this is the way it goes. When the whole nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, choose 12 men from among the people, one from each tribe, and tell them to take up 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan, from right where the priests are standing and carry them over with you and put them down at the place where you stay tonight. So Joshua called together the 12 men he had appointed from the Israelites, one from each tribe, and said to them, go over before the ark of the Lord, your God, into the middle of the Jordan. Each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites, to serve as a sign among you. In the future... When your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. So the Israelites did as Joshua commanded them. They took the 12 stones from the middle of the Jordan, according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites, as the Lord had told Joshua. And they carried them over with them to their camp where they put them down. Joshua set up the 12 stones that had been in the middle of the Jordan at the spot where the priest who carried the Ark of the Covenant had stood. And they are there to this day. We'll skip ahead to verse 19. On the 10th day of the first month, the people went up up from the Jordan and camped at Gilgal on the eastern border of Jericho. And Joshua set up at Gilgal the 12 stones that they had taken out of the Jordan. He said to the Israelites, in the future, when your descendants ask their parents, what do these stones mean? Tell them, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the Jordan before you until you had crossed over. The Lord your God did to the Jordan what he had done to the Red Sea when he dried it up before us until we had crossed over. He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful 
and so that you might always fear the Lord your God. So today, uh, we finish up our, our series and, and the four stones that we'll be touching on today are uh, healing and miracles, Christian community, racial reconciliation, deliverance, and freedom. I told the early service, we saved the easy ones for last. So uh, let's pray, and then we'll, we'll jump into this. Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thank you for the way you lead us. Thank you for the way you love us. Thank you for the way that you speak into our hearts and into our lives. And uh, Lord, as always, we need to hear from you. And so we ask that, that you would open our ears, give us ears to hear what you have to say, open our hearts, Lord, to receive what you have for us today. We, we need you and we want you. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. So in the Joshua story, uh, the primary characteristic that, that the stones are used to remind the people of is the power of God. That's, that's the primary thing. That the stones are to remind the people of how God has powerfully and miraculously worked. I'll read again verse 24. He did this so that all the peoples of the earth might know that the hand of the Lord is powerful and so that you may, might always fear the Lord your God. And so as we began to talk about stones and we're pointing to stones and we realize that God had told Joshua to set these stones up so when generations to come ask the question, what, are the, what do these stones mean? We have to ask ourselves, what, what do the stones mean for us? What do we want to point the next generation to? What do we want them to believe about God? Do we want them to believe that we serve a God who has lost his power? Do we want to teach them that the God of today no longer does miracles? He, never, he no longer does uh, miraculous healing. Is that what we want to teach? There, there are some, and in fact, there are many who have chosen that path. And they, they choose that path because it's an easy path. Sometimes we pray and, and the thing that we ask for doesn't happen. Sometimes we ask for a miracle and it doesn't come. Sometimes we pray for healing and, and we don't experience healing in the time or in the way that we wanted it. And rather than have to try, try the, to explain why we didn't get what we wanted, maybe it would just be easier to say, well, you know, God just doesn't do that today. Is that what we want to do? Is that what we want to hand our children? Do we want to teach the next generation that we follow a God who has lost his power or lost his desire or lost his willingness? Because those are our options. If God doesn't heal today, if there are no miracles for today, then one of the following things is true. Either God is unwilling, he is uninterested, or he is unable. Healing and miracles are a pretty big part of who we are. Because healing and miracles have always been a part of God's story. Healing and miracles were a pretty big part of what Jesus did on the earth. As Jesus traveled from city to city and town to town, village to village, healing and miracles followed him. Jesus says, come follow me. Okay? So if we're going to follow Jesus then we need to know what he knew. We need to have what he had, and we need to do what he did. 
What, what did he know? One of the greatest things that Jesus offers to us is the identity that he has in the Father. Jesus knew who he was. He knew who he was. And one of the reasons he knew who he was is because when he was baptized, the heavens opened and the Father literally yelled from heaven in a loud voice, this is my son, I love him, he pleases me. Wouldn't you love to hear that? You just did. You just did. Because Jesus came to communicate to us the same message, that we have the opportunity by putting our faith and our trust in him to have that same message spoken over us, to have our identity rooted, grounded and rooted in the same thing that was spoken over Jesus. This is my son. This is my daughter. I love him. I love her. They please me. You, you please me. You make me happy. All of us long to hear that. We, we love to hear it from our earthly parents. How much more from our Father in heaven, the one who knows us? He knows us at our worst. He knows us at our best. He knows us better than our parents. He knows us better than our spouses. He knows us better than our kids. He knows us completely and fully from start to finish, the good, the bad, and everything in between. And he absolutely is wildly in love with us. And he declares this over us. This, this is the identity that he wants to speak over us. You are my son. You are my daughter. Jesus walked in this identity. He wants us to follow him in that, knowing what he knew. He wants us to have what he has. When Jesus was baptized, heaven's open, Father speaks, and then the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, in the form of a dove, lands on Jesus rests on him. Right after that, it says he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, stays there 40 days, 40 nights, fasting, and then he comes back. It says he came out of the wilderness in the power of the Spirit. And Jesus ministered for three years in the power of the Spirit, and he wants us to have what he has. The same Spirit. The Bible says the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. You have what he has. He wants you to know what he has. He wants you to have what he has. And he wants you to do what he did. And so if we follow him, then it would make sense that healing and miracles would follow us. That's his call. That's his call. Second Stone we're going to look at today is Christian community. Now, the church has always been a body. The church has always been about that, something that is more a group or a family than an individual thing. We, we kind of invented, I, I'm not sure, but I think the American church invented the individual thing. Um, we like that just you and me, Jesus thing, but that's really not what he communicated so much. He, he was more about community and family and you know, groups of people coming together and believing together and, and loving each other and, and doing ministry together. The church, as you look at it in the book of Acts, as the church is birthed, it's a community of faith. It's very community-driven. They took care of each other. They took care of each other. They also learned together. They learned together. They prayed and worshiped together, and they walked out God's mission 
together. Sometimes you, know, you don't really realize the value of something until you lose it, until it's taken away from you. Now, I'm convinced that Christian community is one of the most important aspects of our life in Christ. And it seemed to me, even before COVID, that our value for Christian community was waning. It was waning. We, we, were, we were being careless. We were being careless with, with what we had. We, we felt like you know, our, our relationship, just you and me, Jesus, was, was strong enough. And, and because of that, many of us were becoming careless about community. And we weren't as intentional when it came to community as maybe we had been in the past. And then as this value for community was waning, COVID hit. And the thing that had been just waning suddenly was completely stolen. And, and we find ourselves today uh, in many places at a crisis point, at a crisis point uh, when it comes to community because many have lost their value for Christian community. Many others have realized that they never really had value for community, and others are afraid of community. And so what we find as a result of that is a culture that's isolated and alone. We need Jesus, y'all. <laughs> but you know what else? We need Jesus together. We do. We need Jesus together. He never intended us to do it alone. He never did. Uh, we need Jesus together. We need to be the family of God together. And that's his call to Christian community. That is how we operate at our peak is together. Not isolated, not alone, not independent, but as a community, as a family. The third stone we want to look at today is racial reconciliation. Second uh, Corinthians 5 18 to 20 reads like this. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to the world. We implore you. As the world sits in racial hostility, the church is called to actively pursue reconciliation. In fact, the scripture says that God has actually given to us, to his people, the ministry of reconciliation. That is to be our heart, that people would be reconciled. The question often is asked, am I responsible for the sins of my ancestors? And I would say you're, you're probably not responsible for the sins of your ancestors. Can you take responsibility for the sins of your ancestors? You absolutely can. 
You absolutely can. And if you care about reconciliation, you absolutely will. Because for us, as the body of Christ, it's not about whose fault was it. It's about going forward. It's about healing. It's about unity. And if we're called to, to follow Jesus, we're called to love the way he loved. Okay? So, yeah, we can take responsibility. The best example I've ever seen of this in my whole life uh, was in Bogota, Colombia. Some of you heard me tell this story before. It's one of the most powerful things I've ever seen. We were in Bogota at a leaders conference. There were about 3,000 people in this conference room. It was the last day of the conference. We'd been there for about a week. On the last day of the conference, uh, there was a delegation from Spain that asked for a few minutes on the platform. This was 3,000 Christian leaders literally from all over the world. Uh, the worship services looked like an opening ceremony for the Olympics. I mean, there were flags from every country. And they asked for a moment on the stage, and, and so the, the host country, the Colombia, gave them the platform. And this Spanish delegation came up on the stage, and they asked the host country of Colombia to forgive them and to forgive their ancestors for the sins that their forefathers had committed against the people of Colombia. None of these people were alive when those sins were committed, but they took responsibility for it, and they knelt on that stage, and they repented for the sins of their ancestors. And then the people, the Colombian people came around them, made a circle around them, began to lay hands on them and pray prayers of forgiveness. And it was an incredibly powerful moment, and it would have been amazing if it had ended right there. But I'm sitting there watching this happen, and I'm with my younger brother, Bill, and, and there's six children in the Tanner family. Bill's the baby, and so I've always tried to take care of him and you know, keep him presentable in public. And he's sitting next to me, and I notice that he has some, something on his shirt, and I just reach over and brush it off. And then I look back over a second later, and it's on his shirt again, and this time it's more. And, and then I realize it's on my shirt, and then I realize it's on everyone's shirt. And I look up into the sky. We're inside an auditorium. And from the ceiling, falling across this huge auditorium on every person in the room, ashes. Ashes. We're covered in them. People are looking around trying to figure out what's going on. Nobody knows what's happening. No explanation is given and as we get up to leave, I, I turn, Martin Eiswander happened to be sitting behind me. And uh, it's just a general rule of thumb. When you have a question you don't know the answer to, you look for Mark. So I, I look back at Mark and I said, what just happened? And Mark said, you know, in the Bible, repentance is represented by ashes. They repented. God provided the ash. It was a supernatural act. You know why God did, did that? Because he loves repentance. You know why he loves repentance? Because it leads to reconciliation. And that is his heart. You know how I know his heart is for reconciliation? Because he died for it. 
He died for it. That's why he died. To reconcile us to himself. And you got to understand, you all know, that us can't be reconciled to him unless us is reconciled to each other. So he's called us to this. Racism is not a new thing. It's almost as old as history itself. And, and that's why the story of the Good Samaritan was such a powerful story when Jesus told it. Jesus lived in, in a community and in a time in history that was fraught with racism. And it's not so much about the, the past when it comes to reconciliation. The, the primary thing about racial reconciliation is the future. How, how are we going to live going forward? But that makes it necessary to look at the past. Because if, if we don't look at the past and recognize our sins, we may repeat them. In fact, we will repeat them. And so we have to look at the past, but we look at the past with our eyes on the future because we want to go forward in a healthy way. I love the story in 2 Samuel 12. The prophet Nathan comes to David, the king, with a story about a man. He comes with him with a story about a man, and he tells the story about this man. And as he tells the story, David's anger is just rising up and rising up and rising up. And at the end of the story, David is so fraught with anger that he's ready. You know, he says, tells Nathan, you know, this man has to die. This man's sin is so evil, he has to die. And he is just at the height of anger over this, the sin of this man until he realizes until Nathan points out to David that the man in the story is, is actually David. Actually David. Because, you see, David is like us. We hate our sin when we see it in someone else. We hate our sin when we see it in someone else. Sometimes, we're blind to it, or maybe even comfortable with it when we see it in ourselves. The last stone that we want to talk about today is deliverance and freedom. Uh, if you read through the pages of the Gospels, you'll notice quickly that, that one of the key elements of Jesus' ministry was deliverance. Uh, Jesus set about to bring freedom to prisoners and release to captives. And any theology that is void of supernatural deliverance actually sets people up to live in bondage. If you don't believe in deliverance, then you just set people up to be slaves forever, to sin and to strongholds of the enemy. There's a story, I love the story in Mark chapter 5. Jesus is coming down off the mountain. He encounters a man. Uh, who's demonized, and Jesus asks him what his name is, and he says, my name is Legion, because there are a whole bunch of us in here. And uh, long story short, Jesus delivers this man. He casts the demons out of the man, and the demons ask Jesus you know, to have mercy on them, to not destroy them, and, 
And Jesus agrees to send them into a herd of pigs. And they send them into the pigs. The pigs run down a hill uh, into the lake and they drown. And the people are angry. The people of the town, they're angry at Jesus for doing that. How could you do such a cruel thing to those pigs? The truth is, the people of that town were happier when the man was demonized. The pigs were happy, and Jesus was somewhere else. And that's what they asked for. They said, we'd like for you to leave town because he set someone free. We, we live in what I would call a, a, a demonized culture. We live in a demonized culture. It is harassed and it is tormented and it is addicted. Now, hear me clearly on this. We need to stop being angry at the people of that culture. I didn't say that they, the culture was harassing. I said it was harassed. We need to understand the source. We need to stop being angry at the fruit that is being produced and start being angry at the root that is producing it because the root is the devil. Our enemy, old Slewfoot, as some call him, the Bible makes it clear, y'all, that our enemy is not flesh and blood. Our enemy is the devil himself. And his demons have demonized our culture. And the people that sometimes we want to hate, they're, they're suffering at the hands of demonic forces. And what we need to do as a culture, as a Christian culture, is we need to take up our mantle of deliverance and freedom and speak truth, not try to argue people that we disagree with into agreement. We need to speak truth to the wind. That's what they told Elijah to do in the Valley of Dry Bones. Speak to the wind. Speak to the wind. And that's what we're called to do. We're, we're called to understand the root of the problem and to recognize that our struggle is not with flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the God of this world. And if we would direct our anger in the right place, a couple of things would happen. Number one is that we would see the power of God unleashed. But you know what else would be a kind of a side effect of that? We would be nicer. And trust me, that will not be a bad thing. That would not be a bad thing. So when it comes to, to healing and de deliverance, what, what is, what's the key? When it comes to freedom and deliverance, what is the key? Well, the Bible says the key to freedom and deliverance is truth. The truth. But sometimes we think that means 
an argument or a debate. But we need to remember that the truth is not simply an idea that can be understood. The truth is a person who can be known. Jesus didn't say, I I know the way, I know the truth, I know the life. He didn't say that. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. If you want to be free, if you want to communicate freedom, if you want to release freedom in this culture, it starts there. It starts with an absolute surrender to the truth, the person of truth, Jesus. Now let's pray. Lord, there's so much. (laughs) There's so much before us. There's so much in our culture that challenges us. And we know that you have set before us an assignment to make disciples of all nations. And we absolutely cannot do it in our own strength. We we have to have you. We cannot do this without your power. We cannot do what what we have been called to do without your spirit in us. We need you. We need you to pour your spirit out on your church in these days. We don't want to be just a reminder of how things were. We want the present reality of your presence and power. Glorify yourself. Glorify yourself through your church. In Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna have some uh, ministry time in a minute. Before we do that, I wanna invite uh, Tom Fraley. Uh, Tom and Leanne are here. They've been with us all week. It's been great for us. They're just our best friends. We love being with them. Pardon me? Oh, they're from Scotland. They're not from Scotland, but they've been in Scotland for 13 years. Uh, Come on up here, Tom. Um, pastor in a church in Edinburgh. And uh, Tom told me this morning he felt like they had a word for Riverstone, and so he shared at the early service, so go for it. We have experienced the pandemic in Scotland just like you have, but our restrictions have been quite a bit more, really. We went uh, for over a year not being able to meet together as a church. No one was allowed to go into anyone's home. And so fellowship was zero, except if you wanted to do that on on Zoom. Um, We we weren't allowed from Christmas until April. We couldn't even drive five miles from our home. Um, I mean, that was the limit. And just not being in a live worship service, I, I was, I don't know what I was expecting, but Friday night we came and it was the first time we'd been in that kind of environment for a year and a half almost, um, where there was a live worship leader and we were able to sing. We haven't been able to sing. 
and um, I, I'm just coming to the Lord. Lord, I, yeah, I'm here, and but I could tell I, I was empty. I didn't want to be empty. I, I, I knew the Lord's not mad at me, but just my circumstances have been such that I, I've been cut off in a way, or you know, just I'm just empty. I didn't really tell Leanne all of that, but the next day she said, I, I feel like the Lord's spoken something to me. And she brought to mind that passage in 2 Kings chapter 4 where the widow comes and says, I'm, my sons are about to be you know, sold into slavery because I don't have enough money to pay them. And Elisha said, I want you to, to go out and, and have your sons go out and, and get all the empty vessels that they can find and bring them in. And then begin to fill them with oil and they did that, and when they completely filled all the vessels that were empty, then he said, you can go and take that now and sell it, and your sons won't be sold into slavery. And Leanne, the thing that she pointed out or that the Lord was highlighting was that the whole key in one way to that miracle were empty vessels, just being empty. And it's not like I wanted to be empty. I, I, just, I just was and I don't know that I really fully recognize it. Maybe you feel the same kind of way, but you don't have to feel even guilty about that. Even if you've been part of the problem, we, we usually are part of the problem, but that's what grace is all about. That's why Jesus came and hung on the cross because we can't do it in ourselves. And so he's saying, just place yourself strategically before me. You're empty, but... I'll come and fill you. We can't fill ourselves. We can't heal ourselves. We can't. All we just have to do is, is bring our empty selves before Him and let Him fill us. Now, if you're running over and your you know, fountain is overflowing, your responsibility is go out and collect empty vessels. Bring them to Jesus. Mm-hmm. Bring people that, who are empty, bring them to Him. Fill the house and fills Jesus. You know, we've all got a part to play. So... Whatever you need today, if you mm. need to be filled in, in whatever way, He's here to do a miracle. Mm. If we'll just open up and let Him do that. All right, mm. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. I think we're uh, a little bit short on uh, prayer teams today. Uh, let me see what we got. If you're if you're here. And, and you're a part of the prayer team and you're willing to pray for people. Why don't you just come on up here and let's see what we got. <laughs>